All right. Well, so talking to Stephen Sherrill, and you are uh, you are the featured speaker at the North Carolina Writers Network this coming up uh, April. Is that correct? Is well, that I think I'm just I'm one of the participants, one of the speakers. I, I don't I don't know. I don't believe I'm the featured person. I believe that might be live. I mean, to be honest, I, like panels and especially any kind of online thing. Uh, it's not that I don't pay attention. I've just been doing this kind of thing for a long time that I, I look at the details when it gets closer to time, but I don't think I'm the featured, featured person. I don't think so. Okay. Gotcha. Well, regardless of that, you are one of the people speaking. And as I looked into your bio and what you have out there, it looks like you've, I mean, I don't even know where to begin to ask you questions. It looks like you have led a very rich experience as an artist uh, and I guess the first thing that came to mind was I'd like to maybe we can just start with words and start with this story you wrote that apparently got you kicked out of school temporarily. Yeah, I mean it, it's uh, it's funny that you sort of start there and and I think that was a starting point. I'm I have to step back a second and tell you that I am uh, I, I'm in the revision process uh, of a book that I wrote. Christmas and fall of last year, uh, it was my, my 60th birthday was in September and, um, my final academic sabbatical because I hope to be retired. And I took a, a motorcycle and a banjo and came South to, to play at my banjo heroes grave sites. Uh, you know, and I'm a shitty musician. I'm just not really a musician, but it wasn't about that. And I'm kind of in the process of writing about that. And it's very much becoming a memoir of, creative process and how I got there. And, uh, and I've just dealt with the time uh, around the time of that story when I, you know, I dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. And before I got to the point of dropping out, I was just a terrible student. And I had, I had learned how to smoke weed and close everything down. So I wasn't doing anything except internalizing. Right before that, though, I wrote some stories. And I was a kid, I was an adolescent boy you know, exploring adolescent boy stuff. So I wrote a few stories and showed them to my friends and my teacher. Uh, and I, I remember the comments like, you know, these are kind of violent, but they're good, you know, keep at it or something like that. I think today those stories would have gotten me in a lot of trouble, mm. but that was a long time ago. And then I wrote a story about what every 13 year old boy wants to know about, which was sex. And I don't really remember the content. I just don't, I don't recall any of the content but I knew I shouldn't show it to my teacher. Um, but I showed it to my friends and somebody was a, somebody was a traitor because it got to my, it got to my teacher and my teacher, my parents and the principal had a conference that I was not present at and just came out and said, I had to go away for two weeks. I was just suspended for two weeks. Mm. Uh, and it was traumatizing, but the, the power and deliciousness of what words could do and the trouble they could cause just never left me. I mean, I didn't write anything again for a long, long time, a long, long time. And I'm sure that was part of it, like an embarrassment or, or shame or whatever, but I never lost that feeling. So, and I, and I think once I started writing again, uh, I, I dove back into, <laughs> back into the attempts to shock and annoy and, all that stuff. I'm, I, 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 I've sort of consciously uh, tried to develop a, a softer approach over the years. 
it is interesting to me how much I think, uh, you know, many artists, not just craftspeople, but particularly artists, I think, find themselves inspired by something that you just described, something that I also noticed in one of your artist statements, just like the power of visibility and transparency and rambunctiousness, I guess. In one of your artist statements, I noticed you said something like, I I used to think it was maybe imperative to have a secret and I don't feel that way. And there's something about when, when I read that, I interpreted it as something like being visible to the world and risking that trouble that you might cause. Yeah. I mean, I I think developmentally it was important because I I needed to separate from, from, you know, my childhood. And I had a very loving, my core family was very loving and safe, but, you know, one step out to all my uncles and they were just like crazy Southern redneck drinkers, uh, just wild. And I, of course I loved and emulated those guys. Um, there wasn't a lot of expression in any way. The arch just were not part of my upbringing. Like just, it just wasn't, uh, there was no, uh, there's no, no, um, I've, I've lost the word that I want. There's just no, there was no presence of art or literature except for reading, but even that wasn't reading literature. Uh, so when I defined myself as a writer or an artist, uh, like I felt like I had to separate and keep a bunch of stuff in to everybody who wasn't outside of that world. So it's like making this division. And then that kind of filtered out and applied to just life. Like I had to protect some core secret self, both good and bad to make my way through the world. And, and as I've gotten older and just, I don't know if wiser is the right word, just more comfortable with everything. Uh, your word, your transparency word is a good one. I think just it's, I think at this developmental point in my life, secrecy is not good and it's not good for anybody. So I prefer to, I prefer just to, to, to be completely transparent. Another thing that is happening, especially in the writing of this memoir, uh, transparency for sure, but I have no desire to do like an expose tell all story of, of my, like my relatives and all that stuff. So I want to be transparent, but I also want to be sort of compassionate and protective of things that I don't necessarily need to shine a light on. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so too, (laughs) but I'm not sure. (laughs) Well, so it's interesting to me that you went for like, cause writing is a, I think writing it, I I don't know about as far as those selective moments where you might not share everything, but writing is a, is a craft of selectively sharing something in a very creative way. And you managed to get, like, it sounds like you started with writing. I think your website said like in eighth grade and you're talking about 10th grade when, when you wrote this story that got this, that got you that taste of trouble in life. Um, so, so at what point, so at first, am I right that writing was kind of your introduction into the arts in general? Yes. 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 I mean, I think I have, you know, the, the realms that I kind of muck around in now are, are all the realms like words and visual and sound I've always been fascinated by music of all kind mm. and music was present just outside my core family you know we listen to a lot so music was always present and I have always inexplicably been drawn to visual arts I mean the world book encyclopedia I can still remember this the world book encyclopedia this multi-volume set that you know, I'm sorry, my kids will never have the experience of, 
I was always looking through P for painting. Like I was remember looking at Jackson Pollock images when I was a kid with no, nothing steered me in that direction. So, but all that stuff was just like looking and observing. I was not a musician. I was not a painter or an artist, but I was always looking. It was with words where I found my way to make stuff first. Yeah. And then very, very slowly, the other things, you know, became like, like kind of filtered in and then took more and more uh, time and focus. And I just started enjoying putting my time. It's like a learning curve of anything. Like when you start something, you're bad at it. And if you don't persist to get to the point of just at least being able to make something that satisfies you, then you just abandon it. Most people do. And I abandon lots of stuff that way. I kept chipping away at visual art and sound making until now it has be, kind of come to this place where I don't really discern between those realms and my imagination. It's just, it's, it is just creative process and I'm just making things. And I'm also far enough along in, in my professional academic career and in my, you know, 60 year old life. I don't, care about the outcome of most things now i'm just very interested in being in that creative process that's the those are the moments in which i feel absolutely engaged in the world and that's where i want to be so of course good things will happen most of the stuff will turn out to be nonsense i don't care about any of it and it's not that i'm devoid of ego like you know if somebody doesn't like something i'll have my little pouty moments but i just quickly move beyond all that and just Go back to making stuff. Yeah, you're you're the what I've seen of your stuff. It's like a very kind of Renaissance existence, like a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of a lot of things. Uh, there's yes. like visual components to the music that you make. There's videos out there uh, that there's like a visual a visual delivery of the music that you make. Um, right. I guess like you say, it was always there. That interest was always there. But how did you go from maybe not you know, like not being involved in that world at all to finally kind of jumping in and dipping your toe and experimenting with these things and doing so long enough to like really stick with them. Like what was the initial entry point? Well, I mean, again, I'm, I'm really dealing with all that stuff in the writing of this memoir. And I truly had to grapple with the word memoir. I really dislike that word. And I, I can't even, I can't even completely articulate why. So it's taken me a long time to to acknowledge that I am writing a memoir slash travelogue, but I'm dealing with that stuff right now. Um, and, and, and having just thought about that whole time period of my life uh, today and yesterday, uh, for whatever reason, my kind of innate response to stress and trauma and struggle and insecurity and doubt is to just take a step forward. I mean, after I stopped drinking and drugging and shutting everything down, once I sort of opened the door, I just move forward and, and try something and then try something else. So I remember buying my first, I remember buying my first set of paints and paintbrushes. And I was like mid to late twenties. I think I just wanted to say, I want to paint, I want to paint a picture. Uh, and I painted some hideous, hideous pictures, but I had some great experiences doing that. Um, making music was the, was the, was and continues to be the hardest struggle. Like I, I've always wished that I could perform and make music, you know, to 
you know, something more traditional or whatever. Uh, and I've hurled myself out in, in, in many, many realms, but that's the, that's the one area where the insecurity is always still present. But I've just been hurling myself out and trying things over and over again. So for instance, um, I think if I could choose, you know, if I could choose one realm in which I would have been successful in, it would have been singing. And my wife is an amazing singer. She tells me I've got a singing voice and I just don't feel that confidence. Uh, I cannot sing even with her. I can't sing, but I had, I had, what year was this? Maybe like six or seven years ago. Uh, I discovered two musical genres at the same time. Shape note singing. Do you know shape note singing? I can't say that I do. Or sacred harp. It's an old, it's an old sacred spiritual music. Like it's a, it's an acapella four part, weird, weird harmonies. Like when we're done, go YouTube sacred harp and it's, it's you one either loves it or hates it there's not much middle ground but i loved it and i discovered sea shanties uh through an interview with some uh with a colleague and some friends and i just sent um an email to my colleagues at campus would anybody like to come to a sea shanty party so we had a party of probably 60 people at my house singing sea shanties and i'd never sung in front of anybody before but I led the first sea shanty. I remember that feeling. I remember like, what shall we do with a drunken sailor? And I remember it. I remember my dog got terrified and ran all the way around the room and jumped up on the couch. And eventually that led into, uh, for a while, and people still want me to do this, but I'm not interested. I was fronting a, a shanty choir, like I like black leather pants with goat hooves and bells on, this, on, the, on the cuffs and just absurd nonsense and me shrieking. Usually by three songs in, my voice was gone. But I can't stand up in front of humans with my banjo and sing a quiet song. So I don't really know why, why that is. And I might get there. I might not. I don't know. I've just always been willing to hurl myself at some wall to see how far I could get through it. Man, that's a long answer for a short question. Sorry. No, say what? So a long answer for a short question. Sorry. Oh. No, no, you're good. I mean, that, that, that got us to some interesting places. Like, uh, uh, I, I, that that level of tradition is something that catches me for sure. Uh, you know who Stan Rogers is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of my Canadian buddies got me onto Stan Rogers and uh, furthered my my love for sort of that that style of music, especially acapella music, which I don't, oh, yeah. you know, really, I, I haven't listened to a ton in my life. And it, he inspired me to kind of think about what a, what a, maybe a, a play or something around the idea of sea shanties might be like. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's just that's right down my alley, man. I, I guess like, I guess what uh what it brings to mind for me is like the sea shanty thing, the banjo ghost legends thing. It sounds like you're very in touch with the traditions of art, and it seems like there's this whole there's like the contemporary arts too and i'm sure that you you dabble in those or have your hands in those yeah. somewhere but i wonder if you like what is if we if you were just like introducing the idea of the traditional arts to maybe a younger artist where would you start with explaining the value of the past of like the 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 old the old knowledge that exists in the traditional arts mm, that's a great question i mean you know i i think I think I would try to kind of emphasize that we are on a continuum. 
You know, there's, there's really that we are on a continuum or, um, uh, what is that weird mathematical? Um, it's not a helix. It'll come to me in a minute. There's, there's, there's like this sort of self-connecting thing. You know, we got this notion that history is way in the past and the future is wherever that is. And, you know, as practitioners of the arts, I think we kind of step in a Mobius strip. Mobius strip is the word I'm thinking about. It's kind of rolls and connects together. Like we just kind of step into this moment and are able to both reach back and pull those traditions, you know, from however far back we reach and extend our hand into whatever's, you know, whoever's reaching out ahead of us. The old songs that I was playing at these graves, you know, there's a, there's a line that comes from like the upper part of England and Ireland and kind of sweeps down through New England and into Appalachia. And all of that stuff is where those old, Ban most of those old banjo songs come from those old ballads the child ballads and the, um uh, i forget the other uh song collector's name but there are lyrics from songs that you know people are still singing today that were sung in ireland in the 1800s just tweaked a little bit and the melodies changed a little bit and then of course it gets kind of mixed in with the whole banjo history which comes from 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 african tradition over so it's a very much a, a melting pot and I think that's the kind of thing I would emphasize for, you know, any beginning artist, whatever their medium is to both, you know, look back and see where you are and see where you're going to reach out and, and hand it off. Like there's no, there's no, it's important to acknowledge that, that past, uh, but only in as much as that you can kind of bring it forward. There's a great song. Um, Gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it. I'm blanking on. I need some more caffeine. There's this great, this great example of how folk songs get updated. Omi Wise. It Omi Wise. I don't remember the name of the song. There's a very old song that came from the UK, like housed in Appalachia and bubbled up. And and a, a very recent rendition I heard of it. These this young man and this young woman made it about. Um, O.J. Simpson killing those two people, like it, it was uh, Orenthal or Orenthal. It's like perfect, perfect fit, but just part of this continuum, you know. So that's that's. I think that's what I would say. Like you are not, you are not here or there. You're on this loop and see where you're going to step in and what you can add. I like that. I really like that. Have you has that always been present in your approach to art, or was that something you learned over time? I don't. I think I probably have learned to talk about it over time. I think I've learned to articulate it over time, but I have, you know, in addition to looking at, uh, um, you know, Jackson Pollock and the P section of my world book encyclopedia, I was also looking at all this classical art. So I've, I've just always, I haven't been, I haven't been one to sort of parse everything out. This is art. These are the schools in here, but this is art. This is music. You know, I also bought, <laughs> again inexplicably at some flea market in charlotte north carolina when i was probably 13 years old a double lp of talking african drums just and i played that record until the grooves were out but i had the same feeling about those rhythms as i did about you know everything johnny cash did and everything hank williams did i was just never never there was never a distinction between its potential and its pleasure 
And, and, you know, I guess the conscious that, of course, it took me a while to learn how to articulate that. Consciously or subconsciously, it, it, it wasn't very long for, I was just, I was just looking and reaching all the time. Like I didn't, I wasn't interested in categorization and exclusion because of that. Well, I think that opens the door to one of the other main questions I want to ask you. I just, I really want to hear about this motorcycle banjo thing. Like, it sounds so interesting. It sounds like such a big lifestyle choice to, to do that for a while. I mean, where did that come from? Well, I don't know. It came from the same, here's another, like I've been, I'm talking about all this stuff. Um, the idea for that project hit me with the same power and in the same way as the idea for every novel or every poem that's been successful or even the unsuccessful ones. Like it's just a thing that come to, came to my head. And, and one of the things that I was talking about in my writing up today was that I've spent decades now just cultivating receptivity, like stream of nonsense in my head is, is going all the time, you know, uh, and not in a bad way. And I've just learned to pay attention to the things with some energy. And, and I've been doing that for a long time and cultivating a world and an environment and a lifestyle in which I can do that and get rewarded for it. Now, there's a whole bunch of luck involved. Everybody, you know, I, I am, I have been very fortunate, uh, but I have two responses to people who say, you're just lucky. You know, one of them is I work my ass off and I have failed many more times than I have succeeded. And I have put myself in the crosshairs of luck consciously and actively for longer than I can remember. Mm. Uh, one of the, there's a, there are two phrases that are kind of aphorisms or, or catchphrases that I'm trying to filter in throughout this motorcycle ride book. One of them is, uh, which one should I start with? One of them is, there ain't no notes on a banjo, son, you just play it, right? And it's all about overthinking. Like, I couldn't play the banjo because I was trying too hard to play the banjo. When I just stopped all the nonsense and started making noise, I started having a good time. The other one is you go where you look, right? And that's a that's a that's like motorcycle wisdom from the get-go. If you're riding into a corner and there's a dead possum in the corner and you think I better not hit that fucking possum, but you look at that possum, you're going to hit that possum. Mm -hmm. You go where you look. Well, I have been looking consciously proactively for a long time now towards a life that I want a life in which I can do what I want with my imagination and my time so I've I'm 21 years into an academic career in which the first three or four years I had massive success with a couple of novels and it allowed me to do all these other things so I just kind of pay attention and because I I you know paint and make music I was able to I was able to, and we have a program called Integrative Arts. I was able to get my title, uh, Professor of English and Integrative Arts. Well, there's so much bullshit you can put under the umbrella of Integrative Arts, right? I can propose almost anything. And one day, last, I guess it was last spring, I was walking around, you know, we were still in COVID, uh, and I thought, huh. And I had just gotten this motorcycle or had the idea for the, or I put a down payment on the bike. Like I'd been without a bike for a while. And I thought, huh, I could go for a ride on that motorcycle and take a banjo. And that was it. That was the core of the idea. And then it just kind of developed. And I, I approached the development of that project 
like I did with a novel. I was like, all these themes are going to happen. All this actual material has to happen. All this equipment has to happen. And it was just like outlining any other kind of story or project. It was, it was a, it was an awesome experience that, uh, that, that changed as I did it, but also gave me everything I wanted it to give me. I mean, yeah, I don't know what else you want to know about it. It was, it was awesome. I'm sure there's a lot more I want to know about that, but as you were talking through that, a different, a different and more personal curiosity, I think came to mind that I want to ask you about. And it's like, I guess first I just want to acknowledge that like, there's probably more people in the world that want to be artistic than there are those who are deeply, deeply committed to their crafts. And I acknowledge that, uh, not everybody's going to like have the same nomadic or, or successful or free life that maybe they might think another person has. But one thing I want to ask you, it's like, I I talked to a lot of artists on this podcast and a lot of them are in a place where they're, they're basically negotiating with themselves about, I know the kind of life I want to have. I know that I want to be free to create things. Uh, but I, I do, I feel stuck in this and this is, this is coming from me too. Like I feel this way currently right now. I have a very clear vision of a future that I can imagine. That's a lot more artistically, uh, sort of available or uh, available to my artistic side for it's more fulfilling to my artistic side than, than what I am finding myself doing for economic reasons. You know, I don't know if the, like the times may be very different from when you were in your twenties or whatever, or maybe not, I don't know. But I mean, what do you think, what kind of, um, let's just start it there, man. Like, I mean, what, what, when you hear that and you know that there are other artists, young artists out there who are sort of not, they don't feel like they know how to really commit to that lifestyle that really celebrates their creativity. Yep. I, I, I got all kinds of thoughts cause I'm thinking about that stuff all the time. So, I mean, my, my first response has to, I'm, I'm, I'm very much, man, I don't want to say it like that. I'm pretty tired of the imaginations of 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds. I've been doing this for a long time, but I can stir it up enough in the classroom that they don't really get that. And I'm still, uh, I'm still seriously um, committed to, uh, to giving them what I think is important. And I, I do believe that there, that everybody, I think that everybody has the potential for imagination and creativity. That's probably not the case just biologically and, and, and psychologically. It's probably not the case, but I act as if. And I think that most of our society serves to consciously or corporately squash all of that and, you know, commodify everything. And if, you know, if you're not singing on the, the, the contest show, then you're not a singer. Like, I think the odds are stacked against for sure. So I teach to the kind of kid that I was, like a stone bozo sitting in the back who's not quite sure. And if I can just open one door for them and then they maybe can go through, but the, the most, the deeper answer to your question is one that I think about all the time. Like, and I'll take it back to you, go where you look. Like I am at this place in my life, which is pretty rich and open uh, because incrementally I have stepped towards it along the way. It's, it's like when I think about writing a novel uh, 
and and I I love the process and I'm completely comfortable and I don't really suffer from writer's block. I don't suffer from writer's block, but I also acknowledge that sometimes a week of eating ice cream, drinking whiskey and watching Bob's Burgers is is writing. Sometimes you just shut down and take it in. Yeah. Um, uh, I forgot where I was going. Like, oh, writing a novel. If I had to, if I sit and consciously try to grapple with that big, long, dark tunnel that is a whole novel, I'd never do it. It would just seem daunting and, and unassailable. Just couldn't get there. I write a novel one scene at a time, sometimes one sentence at a time. If, if I'm struggling for a day, I'll set all day for a couple of good sentences. And you build an entire book that way. Well, when I was a kid, and by kid, I mean, you know, 25, 30 years old, trying to step my way into this, I wasn't really sure what the big vision of my life was, but I knew that I wanted to prioritize writing as much as I could. So I cooked a lot, but I was also writing when I could. When I got to Iowa to graduate school, um, I thought maybe teaching would be something that would allow me this. So I'm, and I didn't get a teaching assistantship. I didn't get anything like that. So I made myself, uh, I proposed a course at the local YMCA, like incrementally, and I tell my kid this, I have a 25 year old daughter who's kind of trying to find her way. You know, you've got, uh, I feel like it's important to have big picture targets. Like this is where I want my life to be. But there's a whole lot of space between here and there. And, you know, for the moment, maybe what I need to do is, is you know, wait tables and, you know, teach one class or take one class or something like that. So I think it's, it's 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 that whole you go where you look it's important to well you go another motorcycle analogy when when you're going through this turn and there's a dead possum on there you shouldn't even be looking at the turn you should be looking at the at the apex of the end of the turn so that you know where you're going to end up at sure. so you got this notion of where you want to end up at and you're always aware that that dead possum is there so it, it's like incremental steps like I, I, if I want, and, and, you know, my days aren't perfect. My life isn't perfect. There's lots of stuff I'd rather do when I'm having a particularly shitty day. Uh, I'll come back as tightly as possible and focus on something that I can do right now. That's going to help me through this moment. And everything is always in flux. Some days are going to be good. Some days are going to be bad. The bad days I'm constantly tightening my focus and, and trying to get one thing that I can and, and acknowledging that sometimes you just, for sometimes a day, you just give up and can't do anything. And that's, that's part of the creative process. That's an important part of the creative process that I don't kick myself when I, you know, spend three days watching bad movies, Japanese movies on, on TV. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really great to hear from you because, you know, in some of the conversation, I think I, I, I mean, I've been, I've had relationships with artists for a while and I know, and, and I've, I've, I've felt it myself too, that it can be, it can feel this particular kind of devastating to know that what you want to do is, you know, I, I wish all my time was dedicated to this thing. And on one hand, when you don't feel like that is your reality, sometimes it's not motivating to do the thing for some reason. Yeah. 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 Sometimes even when you have the free time, it's like <laughs> that, that's a whole different subject, I guess. It's like, it's like why bother? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I guess, 
like a, another, and then, and then we can change questions if you want to, like another, um, you know, I, I, I think that outside of my, my family and the kind of key things to keep me alive, I prioritize my creative energy and space above everything else, uh, everything else. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty easy to see when you start looking, when one starts looking that this is kind of a, there's, there's like a little bit of a Buddhist element in here that all of the worry and the doubt and the fear and even the sort of ego driven hopes and, and aspirations, all of those are something outside of process. And whatever I'm feeling, like if I'm feeling all this deep insecurity or, you know, my head's so big that I can't get through the door, I'm not present in making a thing. So I found that a good, a good strategy for me is to just come back and make something, just come back and make a paragraph or, or make a, you know, make a, make some noise on a banjo or whatever, or synthesizer or whatever else. Like if I, if, and it's, it's, it is very much Buddhist practice in that, you know, only the most advanced and enlightened monks can just stay there all the time. The, the doubts are going to creep in, but it, it, I do think it's a, it's like a muscle. It's a practice. You can get better at just coming back and focusing on the thing. And the next day is going to be something different. Just always coming back to that, that thing that's, that validates has been my strategy. And it's, that's what I try to encourage my kids to do. And, you know, anybody who asks me those kinds of questions, I mean, it's, it's so incredibly easy to talk about the writing of a novel and spend all that energy so that you don't actually have to sit and write a novel or a song or a painting. Like it's very, very easy to talk about the struggle of painting or, you know, how this is going to be the best book in the whole world. If none of those is actually making the painting or the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. That reminds, I, let's see. I, recently I heard or saw something about, I can't remember the, what the context was, but I, it stuck with me. It was something to do with like, maybe in pursuing something, maybe letting go of the idea of an objective uh, compared to maintaining a relationship. And I've, I've been thinking about that in many contexts. Yeah. Uh, I've been thinking about it kind of in the terms of what you've been describing, like creative process versus maybe the, the objective of being, uh, arriving at some place of like, I am a, I am a professional songwriter and that's all I do with my time, but rather mm -hmm. like enjoying that relationship with your own self, with your creativity. Also in terms of like relationships with people. I mean, I think this distinction is important in a lot of different places. Um, I agree. But it sounds like, yeah, as you were talking about your sort of creative process, that that's like, it kept coming back to me. Like, I, I, I wonder when, this sort of the objective of the professional status of a musician or an artist or whatever. I wonder when that came to be like when you were coming up in the arts and am among other artists, was it that same draw? Was it because, because you, when you talk about it, you sound like it was a lot more about, I want a particular lifestyle more so than I want people to perceive me as a successful so-and-so. Is that accurate? Yeah. I think that's accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to, I want to be comfortable in my making. I mean, um, um, 
I mean, I think everybody struggles with identity. Of course, I want to be seen as a writer and, and, and even, you know, I want to be seen as a motorcyclist and a banjo player and all this stuff. But I don't know when I was able to make this shift into rather than I want to be into I want to do. Yeah. That's where I kind of dwell right now. You know, I don't, it's like an easier analogy is in the musical realm. Like that's always been a place where people have and sounds have been commodified and sold and, and, and actual players have been exploited uh, so that other people can make profit. You know, I think the art world, the visual art world, I don't know how much you know about the nonsense of the contemporary art world, but it's just stupidly political and outrageously just way too much money. And it's all about ownership and commodifications, nothing to do with with making so those two realms where things can be sold are they're they're clearer you know it's, it's just much more transparent how vapid and and, and money driven it is i think it's probably different in the in the world of words because it's you know a writer's very personal thing um yeah i don't actually i don't know how to answer the question you're answering but or you're asking but it, it's um do you get the sense that there's a different level of maybe the the is, do you think that the level of pride people might take in the perception like the like what you were getting at I think some people do think that if they <laughs> I'm not trying to sound super whatever like critical of of how people are it's just like but I remember and I and I see it in my own tendencies like it's way it's it's way more likely that I am uh talking about the concept of my new album or something than it is that I'm like working my ass off to get it done yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, it's like sometimes that that belief, that conceptualization sort of period is something that I confuse with actually being the creator, which it's not like it's unimportant, but what seems to be more important is the real action of of getting down in the nitty-gritty. I think you're right. I mean, I think I think I think you're right also in that that developmentally as an artist and and even as a person like to be able to conceptualize and kind of put on those suits and those hats and whatever, I think that's an important developmental stage to getting towards discomfort of, uh, uh, you know, of doing uh, and, and it becoming kind of flawless. You know, I, I realized a long time ago, I'm the stuff that I write is just not going to be commercially uh, top of the charts. It's just not going to get there. And that took a lot of pressure off. Like I just don't have to, I don't have to think about that. I've, you know, I've had enough success that if I don't write anything else, I'm all right with that. It means that I probably will, or if I don't, I just don't know. If I if I publish another book, great. If I don't, I'm satisfied with all that. But that's 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 letting go of you know this. Uh, I don't mind. I don't mind my failures being visible. Like I don't mind all the whole process being visible. Hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So we can change gears. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but I really appreciated that because I feel like, and I, and I, some, some of the people I know that watch this show uh, are younger artists, and I think the things that you've said are, you know, really great to hear. Uh, you know, so. And they're, they're, you know, they're sort of hard won. Like I have worked to get to this place. And, and, and there are cracks in my facade sometimes, like sometimes, sometimes the negative stuff creeps in. So I would never want to present myself as, you know, this, uh, enlightened artist. For sure. 
Yeah, I get that. I, but I think, you know, um, yeah, just, I mean, you, uh, from the outside, from the outside looking towards you, I mean, you seem like it's that level of focus and commitment, I think, that I'm getting from our conversation toward being like committed to the life you want to live. I mean, that's the hardest decision for a lot of people to make is like, it's, it's a lot easier sometimes to say, yeah, I know what life I want to live, but like, how am I going to make money? How am I going to have dental insurance and stuff? Like, and that's a sacrifice. A lot of people decide to make. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you who, uh, who some of your banjo heroes are. (laughs) That was a hard list to make because I've got a lot of them. Um, I initially made this list and was headed all the way down to Mississippi for, uh, um, oh my God, what's his name? I definitely need more caffeine. Um, he sang Bowie, but Charlie Patton. Charlie Patton? I think it was Charlie Patton. But in the end, Charlie Patton was more of a guitar player. So the people I ended up visiting, I'll tell you in order, and there are so many others uh, that I would have visited, but I had to, you know, my the the realist in me steps in plus i was riding a fairly modest little motorcycle 650 cc's is you know not the most comfortable thing so i visited roscoe holcomb in kentucky i visited um uh, doc boggs in virginia i visited um uh uncle dave macon in woodbury tennessee i visited bascom lamar lunsford in just north of Asheville. Uh, Tom Clarence Ashley, also up near Asheville or Mountain City, Tennessee. And then back to my home state of North Carolina, I visited uh, the hardest grave for me to find, the most fringe player, this old uh, African-American man, Dink Roberts. Just very fringe, very raw, but his sound has moved me since the first time I heard it. And then the last grave I visited was not a player, but it was a, a famous very famous murder victim, Omi Wise. So I went to Omi Wise's grave and sang Omi Wise to her. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. This is a, a cool tiny little banjo. What? This is the coolest project I've ever heard of. I it think. was so fun. I mean, and there was so, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of changes in the nature of the project along the way that, that are kind of informed by the stuff that we've been talking about. You know, I, I of course, I had these fantasies that, you know, partway along the way, I would become a, a YouTube superstar and people would be following me. And then I just kind of stopped making those videos along the way because I fell in love with writing about the project. And I hadn't written the book in a while. In fact, I was saying I might be done writing because it's too much of a pain, but I fell in love with writing. So I stopped crafting little videos at night to put up, you know, for, for my whatever fan base I had. Uh, I still recorded everything at the graves, but and I've I've I'm coming to the conclusion that I do not want to be a performing musician. I'm not there yet. I'm not quite ready to give it up yet. It doesn't mean I'll ever stop playing music and making just nonsense noise with with friends. But that trip kind of led me to something else. So I've got all this footage. You know, I've got riding footage that only motorcycle people would be interested in. I've got three different camera views of me at all these weird grades and all these weird situations. Uh, yeah, it was it was very it was very fulfilling, and also long, like twenty one days, twenty five hundred miles on a six hundred fifty cc motorcycle. Of those twenty five hundred miles, probably two thousand two hundred were curvy mountain roads. <laughs> 
So I was ready for some straight roads by the time I got home. So I hate to admit that I am not familiar with a lot of these names that you've listed. Are these all of a similar banjo playing style or are they all kind of different? Uh, there's a whole bunch of overlap and a whole bunch of overlap in their degree of, of presence in the world of music, old time music. For instance, um, uh, Bascom Lamar Lunsford, who's Asheville based, you know, and, and they're all in, you know, born late 1800s, died by the mid 1900s and many earlier than that. So their time frame is the same. Uh, Bascom Lamar Lunsford was a lawyer you know, an Asheville, North Carolina kind of muckety-muck, um, also a, a horrible racist and anti-Semite, I believe, but I, I addressed, I will address that in the book. I wasn't about the politics of these people, I was about their sound, but he was really, really important in, um, uh, what was the festival called? I mean, it was an Asheville, North Carolina festival in which he did the thing that we were talking about early in this podcast, like carrying tradition even from further back and kind of keeping it alive and vibrant so he's really instrumental in that uh uncle dave macon uh is um tennessee like the the first grand old opry kind of star and also a rabble rouser like i would say he's kind of the 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 possibly the Marilyn Manson of the band just a rowdy rowdy big tooth big gold tooth and flamboyant um, the other couple of players are, or three or four players are just hard hit working class coal mine and music for them. Uh, it, I mean, it was about sort of, it, it was pulling stuff out of the coal mines and, and out of the coal mines all the way from across the ocean and, and sort of keeping it alive. And then there was Dink Roberts who there's not much, like his was the grave that was hardest to find. There was no grave marker and I was told that uh, but that his wife probably had a grave marker and and I pull up into this church and this is North Carolina at the end of the trip and I was tired and there were three churches there in this within a couple of blocks uh, one of them was derelict and back of the back and I thought all right that must be it and I went back to the church and and there were really kind of three little graveyards and I walked around all of them and I didn't see anybody any, any, I didn't see his name or his wife's name. And I thought, well, I'm just going to set up and do my stuff here. Like I had a whole ritual that I did. Um, and I, I kind of started getting my gear out. And then I saw past this pretty large tree, a little like a cut, cut away in some, in some brush. And there were a handful of graves back there. And there were, there were a bunch of graves lined with cinder blocks, big blocks. But then off to the side, there were just two graves lined in bricks. They didn't even get cinder blocks. They just got bricks. And his wife was named in one. And I was just, I felt that indentation was him. Um, and his music is, is raw and old and he giggles a lot. And you just like, if you look for him on, on, um, on YouTube, Dink Roberts, um, he's got this look in his eye that I saw in my grandfather's eye. And I feel like that has something to do with my draw towards him. His music is very raw and ragged. I'm also drawn to that. Um, so all these people that I talk about, and even the ones I dismissed, in the world of old time music, most of them are pretty well known. And that's a that's a that's a pretty rich subculture. There's lots of like nationwide and even even in the UK and Europe, 
there's a big subculture of old time. Really, there's a subculture of everything. It doesn't, if you name something, there's some group of lunatics who are obsessed with it. <laughs> right. What about on a, like, what can you tell me on a, I don't want to get too personal, but like spiritually, I'm curious about this. Uh, Cause you know, that probably is a different realm for a lot of people as far as what it, what it all means. But I mean, I guess, do you, can you, can you, can you talk at all about like maybe what your belief is about what is happening here in this space where, where you in this physical form are going to these places where these bodies are resting do you do yeah. you feel like you're like having a can you or do you feel as though you're connecting with them like in a real way yeah i mean it's funny like that's that is a question that i get like what in fact the uh clarence ashley's grave um i just because i believe in asking and just sort of seeing i had made this connection with a, a um someone who grew up in the area and was part of the musical realm and i said i'm looking for a place to stay so i ended up staying at his house do you know the name Doc Watson, do you know his name? Yeah. So Doc Watson played with Clarence Ashley. So I stayed in the house in which Doc Watson and Clarence Ashley sat on the porch for hours and hours and hours playing. And I felt the ghosts of those guys, man. I really, really felt it. But their relatives were there. And after I, that was the most social event that I had for the entire trip and had these great conversations. But this, this one woman said, did you, did you feel anything there? And, and yes, like, I, you know, um, like I don't, I do not, I am a non-believing, uh, I'm even, would even call myself an anti-theist. I think that religion has done more harm than good, right? I'll go ahead and say that. Uh, don't really believe in ghosts or supernatural stuff, but I believe in ghosts and supernatural stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just fun. And, and, you know, part of my flow and my process I'm just willing to go there for the sake of this experience and narrative and story. So this, there's going to be a ghostly presence in this thing. And I, I felt it. I scientifically don't believe it, but I felt it. And I don't care to differentiate between those two. So, um, you know, the title of this, I don't know if I even put that on any information anybody could know yet. The book title that I'm writing right now, if it sticks, will be called Motorcycles, Minotaurs, and Banjos, A Modest Odyssey. And it is this kind of spiritual journey into, out of, like I equate Minotaurs and Banjos. They're both mongrels. They're both rowdy outsiders. The banjo players are often just hardheads. You know, they're just, they're those guys. And that's where I came from. So I'm definitely equating this kind of outsiderness and the the Minotaur character that I that I have written about for 20 years now is not a fierce beast. He's a sad old guy who cooks in a restaurant and has a big fat tongue so he can't speak. So this notion of feeling like you're the freak in the room with horns and your tongue is too thick for you to speak, it goes hand in hand with playing banjos to me and all of the players that I went to visit uh, even the successful ones either came from or never escaped that fringe outsiderness. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. And so I'm, I'm trying to, it's again, it's like the continuum that we're talking about. I'm trying to sort of just tap into something that's already present and ride it for a while. Yes. Yes, sir. Um, I, I mean, I feel like we're very, 
we have more in common than I think I even I realized when we started the conversation. I I was a pretty avid anti-theist for a while, and I think uh, a lot of what you're describing is what has made that not as much part of my life. Almost exactly what you said. Like I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in spirituality, but I enjoy believing in it, and I don't feel the need to make that distinction. Yeah, yeah. I'm right there with you, man. And I think it's the not on a, not necessarily in a religious way, but mythology in almost every sense of it, including religion to some degree. Like I think the, the myth, the, the mythological, the belief aspect of what it means to use symbolism to explain how you want to try to interact with the world, I think is like a fascinating, beautiful thing sometimes. And I do think it's, it's exactly a part of what you're talking about, a part of tapping into the traditions within art and carrying them forward in some kind of way. I mean, it's a thing that we have done since before we were language beat creatures, you know, we have used symbols and we will always do that. And I, I, um, you know, when, when I first claimed the title atheist and then went into anti-theist, I was, I was, adamant and sort of proselytize. I like, I love to use religious words in an anti-atheistic way. You know, I was, I'm a devout atheist and a proselytizing anti-theist. And that was about learning. We were talking about this earlier. That was me kind of f- figuring out my role and my identity. And the reality is I don't want to take away anybody's comfort. I don't care. I don't care what kind of nonsense you believe in, you know, as long as you're not telling me, you know, who I can marry and, and who I have to kill which it comes down to that often. I don't care what you believe and and what and whatever. Um, uh, I do, I do whenever I sort of sneak it in though. Whenever uh, inevitably in any creative writing class, there, there's the opportunity to talk about some Bible story. But I, and I always say in the Christian mythology, you know, I always sort of get that in there, and it's going to resonate with some of them. Some of them it won't. But that's enough for me. I don't need to push them any further than that. Yeah. And then and then I'm willing to talk about anybody who's interested in changing their beliefs. I have no interest in arguing with someone about the validity or solidity of my beliefs. If you want to come from your Christian belief system into what I think is the right one, let's talk about it. Don't try to convince me of anything. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So then there's the problem of gospel music because it's so damn good. But it's like, so good. Well, again, it's like I, I say this. I've said this so many times. Uh, I, I do have this condition. It's not really a condition, but it, it's pretty it seems pretty real. I have a hard time understanding lyrics in almost every song. I, I just really I really do. Unless they're really precise and clear. Uh, I don't know. And maybe I'm embellishing a little bit of that. But I, I have the same. It is possible for me to get the exact same pleasure deep focused pleasure out of these old gospel songs and a little Wayne rap song. Like I just, it's the sonic experience that I'm after. Now, having grown up in the South and in a church, I don't think I've able to, I've been able to completely like squash the sentiment of some of those old really weird gospel. Did you grow up in church? I did. Yeah. What kind of church? A Baptist church. So you know the song, Just As I Am, Walking Up to the Altar. Yeah, it's like, I can't help but res like that. There's a little weird trickle in there. And it's 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 a ridiculous experience, but I, it's going to be there. So so I, I'm not completely able to separate all that stuff. But the, the music I was telling you about earlier, Sacred Harp stuff, 
like when when we're done if you i'll send you an email to remind you you have to look up sacred harp and also fisherman's friends sea shanties and there's a movie about those guys they're awesome uh but sacred harp is just i mean it's purely sacred like baptist fire hell slam on the you know the lord's gonna smite you down but i love all the sound and i am absolutely able to compartmentalize all that meaning with the sonic experience i mean with shape note in particular which is gospel stuff there's a pretty big subculture of that too uh all over the country all over the uk and europe and it's in in the eastern corridor here of the u.s anyway it's pretty deeply you know the young people are lots of jews so they're able you know it's they're able to they're able to parse that out and have the sonic experience they're not there singing about the lord they're there singing mm -hmm. and i feel like i'm able to do that but as a storyteller i, I mean i'm sorry i'm getting a little excited as a storyteller those old gospel songs do some great stuff you know so i am also interested in seeing how that works and exploring that so i so i respect the thing it's like there are three there are many elements there's the content there's the sound and then there's the craft involved right and all of those are functioning together the meaning of those lyrics are the least important of those things to me and i can easily dismiss that and the same goes true for the the, the worst nastiest uh, rap music like i like all of that stuff too so for the same reasons yeah, yeah. So, th but that is particularly interesting because you're a writer too. And I wonder if that, like, is that what does that uh, have in common with the way that you view, like, the way that you approach writing a novel? Like, is it yeah. more about the is is writing a novel for you about the uh, the sort of like almost literate the linguistic experience also more than the meaning necessarily of the words? No, that's a very interesting point, Tyler. So. I how am I going to get here it for me it rare is the song that moves me at the literary level and the sonic level mm. right I'm willing to forgive schlocky sentimental bad whatever songwriting for the sake of the sonic structure even if it's just you know the syllabic sounds the mouths are making um i i i have said more than once and i i, I don't i don't think this is going to change i don't think i have anything to contribute or possibly even the skill to contribute to the world of good songwriting mm. i just don't think i have that and I don't feel the lack. It's not like I'm feeling bad about it because I'm pretty good with words in other realms. Um, but it's an interesting, what's the word I would use? Like it, it's, it is a point. It is a point that words are probably the most important thing to me and, and their meaning and their, you know, their constructs, their order, all of that. And the meaning is very important, except in the realm of songs. That is so interesting to me. I, I don't I don't really know why. I mean, I think it might even be, there might not be much depth there. It might be for the sake of, of just expedition, like just allowing me into the music. Like I do my word stuff over here. I don't need to do it in this realm, right? There are occasionally songs that, that just kick me hard uh, um, with the words and the meaning. 
Um, but those are few and far and few and far between. But music and song in general is, you know, is unparalleled in how important it is to me. So I don't know. It's an odd, it's an odd thing, but it's not a thing I struggle with. Like, I just don't care. Yeah. I mean, I think that's super interesting. Uh, and it, you know, music does serve a particular purpose. So the fact that there's a, there's a sonic element to it at all differentiates it from the purpose of pure literature. So yeah, yeah, I can yeah. definitely see why there would, it would be in a slightly different category for you for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, like we sing, you know, when we were doing the shanty choir business and performing and the shape note stuff, there are lots of, there are lots of, um, poignant moments, uh, big, you know, big epic narratives that happen in these songs, but, but mostly for those things, like it's, there's some of them that really get me, but some of them, it's just the resolution of the sound or the foot stomping chorus, all this stuff. It's just rarely the words. Yeah. Well, so we've been going for about an hour. I don't want to keep you from caffeine all day long. Um, <laughs> but, we can go a little longer if you want to. We can, whatever you, yeah, we can find a couple more questions. I think, um, you had said something, I guess, when we first started getting rolling about, you know, you, I guess you don't find yourself in North Carolina very often anymore. You're up in Pennsylvania. I guess what is, uh, what's your, I guess, moving things to your modern life and whatever you're up to. Um, I wonder what you can, I guess you can take, you can, I don't know exactly what to ask you, but uh, I'm curious, I guess, maybe about your routines with with creativity as it stands now and if your community there in Pennsylvania has been a positive network uh, in that regard. It's been very odd. I didn't know anything about Pennsylvania when I moved here. I left North Carolina and I turned 30 my first semester in Iowa uh, and I haven't moved home since. I've been home. My family's still in North Carolina. Um, but this was the Penn State University and the Altoona campus, which is about 35 miles south of uh, the main campus, uh, was my only real job offer once I got the, uh, once I was able to put novel forthcoming on the, my application, I got an interview, I got the job and, and moved here kind of blind. Um, but it has been just remarkably supportive and encouraging in every realm. Like early on the first couple of years, that first novel of mine came out and then, you know, it, it was a little bit of a fairy tale story. Like there were there were reviews all over this nation and, and seven or eight translations. Uh, it's, and it's still in print after 20 some years. And then my second book had a little bit of a splash, but not much, but it just paved the way for academic freedom. And then recently my wife and I have moved up to the main campus in which we just got a very rich community of people who love to eat and drink and make noise with us. It's just fun. Um, so yes, so yes, I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm not far from retirement because I want to retire, and that really doesn't mean not working. That means working more. That means me not having to do anything for students. Uh, like you know, I, I'm making strange videos that, um, and uh, I've just found myself in a nice puddle of creativity and and very supportive. And and my routine now is because. I haven't been in a classroom since spring of 19. When, when COVID first hit, they shut down everything, made it virtual. And I stayed virtual all last year simply because I didn't want to drive the camp to campus. And I've been on sabbatical this past year. So for the past two and a half years, my routine is just, I do whatever I want to do and make work. And it's been very successful and, you know, not of it. And successful only means I make stuff. 
I don't, whoever, whether it goes anywhere, like I've won a couple very short story contests. Uh, yeah, I'm just making stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a video on your website, uh, or maybe it was your, your, one of your channels or whatever, but I mean, yeah, there's some weird stuff. On one of the, yeah. One of the ones that stood out the most was you guys, three of three musicians in the Buffalo masks. <laughs> That's a minotaur. Those are minotaur masks. They're supposed to be, but they're actually Buffalo masks. Uh, that was just last spring. That was uh, maybe even the fall last fall. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I was very curious about what you, what you are accessing there, like what, what that expression is all about or whatever. And maybe you don't, maybe you don't, maybe it's not useful to like put things to like explain those things too much. But I guess I wondered what was like, what you felt like sharing about that. Well, it, it, the biggest thing was it was just a boatload of fun. Yeah. Uh, that was in Rochester, New York. Um, I've got some some comrades up there who are just equally free in their expression, and it was totally unplanned. Like my my friend who played the saxophone in that said, uh, I mean he's he's a brilliant fringe element weirdo, way on a spectrum, but so much fun, uh, and this deep well of of trivia and knowledge, particularly about. Rochester, which is a richly weird town. So that parking lot that we were in, my friend Tom, you know, grew up in Rochester and and that parking lot was the parking lot of one of the most important jazz clubs of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. So my friend Tom just said, let's go play something at this parking lot. And then my friend Harold, who was playing the drums, said, uh, why don't you bring those masks? Uh, and then I decided to bring my banjo and it was totally unplanned. It was all free. It was all, uh, what's the word, uh, improv. Like we were just, we were just making noise, knowing that it was going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so that's it. There's, there's nothing other than something weird is going to happen here. Let's document it. And in the end, it sounded pretty good. And we called ourselves, what do we call ourselves? Oh, <laughs> in fact, I need to go back up there and do it again. I think, and you have to say it slow, oil hole. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. We are oil hole and you have to say it really, really slowly. So you've reminded me that I have to go back. So there was no significance there other than let's make this weirdness. And that's the best yeah. for me. There's just no pressure, no pressure. And then we went to uh, the same weekend. And I believe that's probably second on that Vimeo list uh, to this uh, awesome graveyard in Rochester in which, um, Oh my God, these two very important people, the Susan B. Anthony and this very important African-American dude are buried there. But we ended up being allowed because I asked, I said, could we go in and sing? We went into this, to a defunct crematorium on the graveyard and sang the Sacred Harp song, mm. which is on there also. So you'll hear Sacred Harp, but it's only in one part. Uh, it's really just hurling oneself into the absurdity because nothing's going to kill you, and if it does, then you're dead. That sounds to me like that the freedom element that you've been hinting at yes. and getting around. And uh, do you do you know uh, Steve Wisniewski? No. He's a he's a guitar builder, banjo player, old time guy around here. How do you uh, spell his last name? I think he goes he goes by Steve Wish a lot of the time, but it's I think W I S H N E V. Nev S K 
That'll get me close. AI or something. Yeah. Yeah. Google will do lots of wonders with that closeness. Yeah. You'll also find them if you look up Wish Base. Okay. Uh, Wish Space or Base? Base, like upright base. Okay. He's a uh, he's a very cool guy. Probably a lot in common. He's a writer, uh, smart dude, uh, instrument maker, old time dude, but. He said something to me one time that really stuck with me. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like 20, I was probably 21 or two, 21 or 22. And I was, I don't know, pontificating about being a songwriter and, and being like, yeah, man, you know, I've been trying to write songs, but I've got writer's block or something, which yeah. was just horseshit. And uh, he said to me something like, eh, you know, songwriters they uh they often they sometimes they just give themselves too much credit like they think that the things they make are them and most of it's on accident and i was like damn i think he's right and and that and then i went home and just started writing and writing and writing and like all that all that stuff whatever it was that was keeping me unfree kind of went away and uh, mm -hmm. when you talk about that, and that's why I said some of these things don't need explanation because sometimes in creativity, that's all it is. It's not, it's not like you have to have this grand explanation for everything you do. Some of it is just surprising and fun and exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a, a significant way that I have to understand that that you're talking about is like I wrote this, I wrote this first novel that, that, it made my whole life and has allowed me to do all these other things and still doing stuff. Uh, but when I was writing that book, I couldn't have articulated and explained and expressed all the things that that book's about. I just could not. It took me years of answering questions for interviews to be able to say, I think this is happening here, here, and here. If I had thought about all that shit while I was writing the book, it would have never gotten on, on the page. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, the, it's again, going back to the word freedom, I think that also happens intellectually. It's like the freedom yeah. when you, when you, yeah, when you bought, like when you box in your ideas and have to be able to explain everything in perfect language yeah. before you really go through the process of discovering what it is you're doing, that's yeah. kind of the opposite of that freedom, I feel like. Yeah. 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 It's funny. One of my best friends up here is a philosopher. Uh, like one of my greatest friends up here and, and he's a deep rich guy and interested in all this other stuff, but it, there's this always this philosophers always have this kind of filter of, of idea and concept. I'm like, don't yeah. think about it. God damn it. Just do it. <laughs> but he's a lot of fun to, he's a lot of fun to cook with and drink with. So. I know exactly what you mean. I have a friend uh, of a, the, the similar discipline and yes, everything yeah. is very, it is, it is a serious conversation. Yes. Uh, yes. But my, my philosophy friend is also a banjo. Well, no, he's a guitar player and musician, so he gets a little bit of that. Is yours also a musician? In uh, you know, he's a music, he's a, like a stereophile. He's got this exquisite equipment. He doesn't play. He doesn't play. I think, I think he, he, uh, his, <laughs> his realm of creativity is uh, uh, Warhammer gaming and painting little figures. He's a complicated, brilliant human being, but he doesn't, he doesn't make, he's a, he's a big appreciator of the making and all of my weirdness. He just loves, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and again, we're both big foodies. Like we just, just bought and, and shared, like bought a pig. We each bought half a pig. So we're going to, you know, spend a lot of time eating pork this summer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he doesn't make, and I don't, I have the hardest time 
he gets fulfillment lots of other places. The people I have the hardest time being with or understanding are people for whom there doesn't seem to be any creative process or desire for it or appreciation for it. I just don't understand people like that and don't quite know what to do with them. Yeah. It's, it's a different type of person for sure. It is. <laughs> it is. I think I, I want to ask you at least one more thing. I want to sure. revisit this idea of the, uh, which was it? Did you say Minotaur? Yeah. 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 But the Brits pronounce it Minotaur. Minotaur. I want to, but I, I say wanna... Minotaur. Minotaur. Okay. I just wanted to ask you one more time, maybe what it sounds like that is a particular fascination with yours. Like you identify with that symbol and you had mentioned it being in the realm of the outsider. And I wondered yeah. if you could just maybe elaborate on that a little, a little bit. Oh, sure. I mean, I, in fact, I mean, that, that kind of, that question will circle back to lots of things we've talked about. I think that, um, you know, early on as a writer, uh, I think that writers and musicians and artists kind of channel things. I think you drop things in, you don't have to think about it. It's just you're sort of coming through you. I think that Minotaur character, as I have identified him, and even true to the mythology, uh, is a beast that didn't ask for his role. He was, you know, he was, he, he was the the spawn of of some badness, some gods and mortals badness, and and then he suffered for it. Uh, and was just a beast and a demon, and he had nothing to do with it. And I took him out of this labyrinth, and in classical mythology, he was killed, but I hope to kind of make an explanation in my book as to why he didn't die. But I put him as an, as a, um, uh, what does it mean when I, you live forever, eternal, um, undying? I, I'm losing words because I need caffeine, but he doesn't die. There's a word for that that I can't remember. Uh, but he just got more and more tired and more and more tired and had to had to find a way to live forever and getting more and more tired and less powerful. So he became a cook in my book and a civil war reenactor and a, 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 a mechanic. And I think that that book resonates. The one that I wrote 20 years ago, because everybody knows what it feels like to feel outside and not quite able to express. I think that's the, the resonating quality. Right. And so over the years, I learned how to talk more about that and identify where I was doing things subconsciously. Uh, and I, I didn't think I was ever going to write another Minotaur book, but he came back to me in a way that I was interested in. So I followed him. So I have two novels about this Minotaur. There's an opera uh, with a, 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 where is he at in Wales or Scotland? Um, this opera that I wrote the libretto for and, and it got it's gotten close to being performed I don't think I don't know if it ever will is this notion of an outsider you know a, a, a former beast kind of stripped of his ferocity and just made more human than most humans so I just started playing with all of that stuff and now he's kind of crept up in my visual art and in my music and all this stuff so the way I would loop it back to all the other things we're talking about is it's it's like it's like creative shortcutting, and, and I don't mean that in an easy way. Like, this is a vehicle in which I can put a lot of valid, viable stuff, right? And I can just go with this Minotaur uh, character to see what he does in this realm, or I can go with this Minotaur character to see what he does in this realm and how he can evolve and change. So I just have found it, I just have found it to be uh, like a ready-made 
you know, motorcycle for me to hop on and ride into creativity. It's just a, a place that I can go. And, and, you know, who's to say, maybe if I, if I let him go and gone in a different direction, I would have been more commercially successful. I, just, I don't really know. And I don't really care because he's just, he's a place I like to go to. I do other things as well, but he's an easy place for me to go to because all the characters that made me feel affinity for the Minotaur are still present in my life, even if I've learned how to navigate them. Uh, and I don't think that, I don't think that uh, significance of feeling alienated and outsider is ever going to be a condition that goes away from our society. I think there's always going to be present. So, so he's just an easy guy for me to, you know, grab his hand and run down the road with. I just, I find that really fascinating uh, because I think artists already by default tend, I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to speak extremely generally about the condition of artistry and the condition of creativity and what it all means, but you know. Well, it's easier when we participate in it, so when we do, so, so we can make some generalizations. I, yeah, I totally agree. And in my experience, you know, there's, there's this, there's this, I, I've been, I've been toying lately with the, this idea of individuality and how individuality and and creativity, I think are linked in some kind of way. Uh, at least I, I always notice that when I distance myself from things that feel too stagnant or everybody's too similar if they all think this way i mean my relationship with religion i think is part of this it's like if 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 we're all just kind of subscribing to one way of being or one way of thinking i don't feel individual enough and that often sometimes is is part of what it, what inspires my need to use words and use music to express something individual and a symbol like that like a mythological symbol i think is just so fascinating that an artist such as yourself can maybe find your own personal meaning in that thing and use him as this as this way to access that whole process mm -hmm. of of your life and your path and your ideas and stuff one, one that has like a universality i think that there's i can't you know i'm sure there are other cultures in the world that, that would maybe argue with me but i think that almost everybody would have something to relate to in this character right but but it's not like I'm transgressing. And especially in this day and age where you just can't speak for anybody else or whatever, I can't, I'm so glad I'm at the end of my writing career in this time where everything gets challenged. And right. so if I had written from the perspective of a black man or a gay man or whatever, there all these challenges are going to come my way. Yeah. Well, who's going to say that about the Minotaur, right? Nobody. Right. Right. So I've got this ready-made access to universal feeling and experience. Uh, and I'm just going to keep going with it or, you know, and see what happens. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I got to like get a glimpse of some of your stuff before talking with you just to do some research and have some points of reference. But, uh, after talking with you, I'm definitely, I'm looking very forward to like diving way further into all of your, all of your stuff, all of your projects that you've done. Or done the, Vim, the Vimeo stuff is insane and fun. The, the, one of the things that I did over the, um, at the very beginning of COVID, like, you know, all of our access to friends and, and, and communal stuff shut down and I just, my brain didn't stop. So I started just like reaching out for uh, just collaborative projects. So I think I have five or six things on my Vimeo channel where I would either propose a sound or maybe give them a sound or, or give us some visuals 
Uh, mm. So this really great collaborative and, and free form, like nothing other than my kind of wanting to see what kind of narrative. Uh, I'll send you those in particular so you can look at them. Some of them are great. And one of them, one of the most successful, I think, is called Autobiography of the Minotaur. Right. And it's 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 so funny. I think it's funny. It's a bunch of my family movies when I was a little guy, some bullfight stuff and then like brilliant, really successful musicians across the country and some in the UK just making this noise. And they'd give me all these sounds and there were no rules. I just put the sounds together like I wanted them. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I'm, we're going to have a showing of those at a local arts center and soon. In Pennsylvania? Yeah. Yeah, but they're all on Vimeo, so you can go look at them if you want. Do you have any plans to uh, do any any releases or anything, like anything in North Carolina, any drive to do that at all? You mean sound stuff? Any shows, any whatever, any live I mean, events? One of, the, one of the reasons that I've been able to be so productive and so fluid is that I, I just, I don't put my energy toward promotion. Uh, yeah. Any of that stuff. I mean, I would love it, but somebody's going to have to invite me down and do all the organizing because I don't want to do it. You know, there's 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 Bandcamp and SoundCloud stuff. All the sound is there. But if I never had to do another book tour or like I like art shows, but to, to it's just so much of a pain in the ass to send stuff out. Like, I don't yeah. them. I'd rather go downstairs and make something like I I'm trying to make I'm trying to make a. I'm trying to make a stop motion thing now with my little crazy minotaur. I made this weird little minotaur um, puppet. And, you know, I'm excited to start that. I've got a friend who collaborated with the sound and, but that's going to take a lot of time. So uh, any kind of promotional stuff is going to take away from the hours I'd have to spend shooting my little minotaur figure moving incrementally. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah. That's like what I get. I, I, I do not, I didn't get in this to be a professional social media manager. I got in this yeah. to be creative and not that, yeah. you know, that realm can be creative or whatever, but that is, that's a part of the modern approach to art that I think kind of sucks sometimes is how much yeah. that keeps you from deep creativity. You know? Yeah. 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 No, you come visit us in Pennsylvania and we'll have, we'll make noise and look at movies and do weird shit, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not driving anywhere unless anybody arranges it for me and makes it quick. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to plan a trip to Pennsylvania and come hang with you sometime. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Well, I mean, hell, Stephen, I think we covered a lot of great stuff. Uh, I think we can we can wrap it up. But man, I'm very excited about all this. I'm excited to do a deep dive of more of your of your creations, and uh, I hope your I hope your speaking goes well with the North Carolina Writers Organization. Uh, it will. I mean, I, I like I, one of the things I told Ed when he asked me this. Like, I'm I I have no interest in lecturing. I don't believe in the I'm not going to spout at anybody. So I'm going to make it a kind of interactive workshop and then a Q&A where we'll do some version of this. And, you know, they'll get what they get. And I, I, I will do a good job from my perspective. And if somebody will like it and somebody won't, that's all right. You're more of a collaborator than, a, than an instructor. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't uh, you know, the older a person gets, I think you should, one should realize, you know, less and less the older you get. Yeah, you know, there's, Right. My job is to pour a little, you know, hot grow on their brains of these kids and then wherever they go, they go. Yeah. And also I tell them, I tell them early on, like, I don't want this class to be hard for you or me. I want it to be fun because I deeply believe that good, creative uh, stuff, learning, everything happens in a state of loose funness. 
Like that's my whole approach. And I get good reviews for that reason, but I'm tired of it. <laughs> I get that, man. Well, um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure that the event will go well. I'm sure they'll be glad to have you. So, uh, yeah. until we talk again, yeah. I guess we can go. Well, ahead. I was just going to say, you know, if you, I, you're welcome to send follow-up questions or we can do this again. Like I, I like talking process. I really like talking process much more than any kind of lecture. I don't, I can't do that, but I can bullshit about process and deeply believe it for a long time. And you might have other questions after you see my stuff, if you're, if you can make it through it. Uh -uh. Oh yeah. I would love to do this again. Uh, I, sure. you know, like, I, yeah, I don't know how busy of a dude you are, but I would love for you to be on here definitely more than once. Like I'd love to have you on here a few times. Yeah, no, I don't go back to, I don't go back to teaching until fall. And even when I'm teaching this kind of thing energizes me, uh, as opposed to a campus class experience doesn't really, but this would be fun. I do this anytime you want. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler, for all the great questions. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Uh, get to work now. Work on some songs. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Bye-bye. See ya.